Jose Quintero sat down for a one-on-one interview in April of 1980. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. I think any session like this has to begin with an exhibition of disgusting sentimentality. (laughs) So I can't restrain myself from saying that for me and those of our generation, I include Jose Quintero, and those of you in the audience who have the misfortune to be of that generation, for me in the theater, he was sort of the sign of youth. Coming from college and coming to New York, and there were two things happening in New York, Quintero and the circle in the square and the Phoenix over on 2nd Avenue. And that sign of youth is now, both for him and me, 30 years old, which is a terrible thought. But for those of you who don't look back that far, I hypothesize that Mr. Quintero is, and he wouldn't like the word, I'm sure, the founder, the spiritual founder of Off-Broadway, and if you like, the father, because that's one came from the other, and I'm sure possibly as a father he would disown many of his children, the father of really all the modern theater movement that's happened in New York, from Off-Broadway to Off-Off and everything else. But we, maybe it was a very narrow neck of the bottle then, but that's where it started. And uh, just this occasion, I'm rather overwhelmed by it. Uh, we'll go into the dialogue or trialogue or whatever it is, pandemonium, I hope. Uh, and I will sort of go, I think we'd start, start off with a topic about directing, about being a director. It's the invisible, it's the invisible factor in the theater. Critics don't know what it, what it is, really. As a former critic, I am free to admit it. The audience doesn't know. The actors have a very one-sided view of it. And I'm wondering whether the, direct, whether the director himself knows quite what it is. I would like to have Mr. Quintero talk about that a bit. But before he does, before he does, going back through my own notes, uh, journalists are always very uh, narcissistic, I found this interview with Liv Ullman a number of years ago. I didn't, wasn't particularly looking for it, but... Here's what she said about Mr. Quintero as a director, and it's so beautiful that I thought I'd just have to read it. I hope it doesn't disarm him. She said to me, when he talks, it is as if you have gold in your hands and should use it as something very precious. Ingmar Bergman, she says, directs you like a conductor conducting a violinist. Quintero comes up and plays the violin beside you. Well, Mr. Quintero, if you would, on the subject of what a director does, if you would play the violin alongside with us for a <laughs> Well, being a, a, a director, is, as you said, is very difficult for me to uh, pinpoint it in uh, one, two, or three phrases. Um, of course, number one is the uh, uh, a writer hands you a play, you read it, you uh, 
digest it and you visualize it in your mind. And uh, that's one of the first functions of uh, directing. But forgetting that is it sounds too narrow and I don't work that way. I can only tell you how I direct rather than what a director does because I have, uh, I have, <laughs> I have not been directed. So therefore I don't know uh, different, I have heard diff- about uh, how other directors work and I have sat in uh, rehearsals of men whom I've admired enormously, like Sir Tyrone Guthrie, and uh, his way of directing is entirely different than the way. The way that he goes about getting a result is entirely different than the way that I go about getting a result. I had no formal education in the theater. I had no education in directing. I never took a course. As a matter of fact, um, it all began, and people don't believe me, but it is true. It began with a group of people who wanted to do theater. And I always wanted to do theater in a country where there was no theater at all. That's a very strange thing. But I was educated in um, a Catholic school in which uh, I was uh, enrolled when I was six and a half and uh, it was a boarding school and therefore all of the needs that I had I had to invent and the church offered me the props or the sort of two, I needed my mother, and the 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 virgin became it. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, for instance, uh, uh, I used to. I was not very good at sports, and therefore, the in the recreation period, they would um, <clears throat> while everyone was playing. I would sneak into the chapel and would light all of the candles in front of this Madonna. And I would tell her, out of the deep need, I gave life to this wooden figure. And out of that need, she would move and she would listen and she, she would speak even. Not that I heard her, but I mean... uh, And one time, uh, to show you how I had to play everything, one time a group of fellow students barged into the chapel and I heard the footsteps on the the stone, the steps. And I went and I hid behind one of the Gothic pillars as if they had caught me in a, a, a very, it was a very private thing between her and me. And I hid 
when they came and they knelt in front of the Virgin, I, who had the need for jealousy, which was the spark of, of every child is jealous of their parents. So I grew so sick with jealousy, hiding behind that pillow because I could see her smiling at them in the same way that she had smiled at me and moving and, uh, you know, even a little, with a little more enthusiasm. And so when they left, I ran to the uh, uh, niche and committed my first murder. I blew out the candle until she receded back into the darkness. So that was part of my education as a director. I didn't have to go and find out I read, I have read Stanislavski, and uh, of course, who, who, who could be in uh, at odds with uh, something as natural as the running brook? Why should a brook go to the sea? Uh, but I did not have to go and, uh, and uh, train my imagination that something that wasn't there or something that was to simulate a tree, if they put a broom, I could make it into a tree because I had done all of that as, as a child. And as a matter of fact, uh, all of my life, and even today, there I uh, rearrange reality to suit me, or to suit the needs, my needs for that particular time. Now, as a director, I must submerge myself into the world of, let's say, uh, Mr. Williams, the play that I just finished. Um, and uh, I have read, I have worked with Mr. Williams, I've known Mr. Williams for since the beginning of, he was the one that began the off-Broadway, Mr. Atkinson came down to see a performance, Summer and Smoke. And uh, so his imagery, it is not foreign to me. The world that he speaks of although I am not a southerner, is very easily translatable to me through knowing him and by uh, matching it with what has happened, let's say, to uh, the, the world of my... Of my um, of my grandmother, a world so formalized, a world that was uh, an, uh, what we call an aristocratic, they call an aristocratic world, and it, it just 
uh, right now it's a small island of people, you know, uh, that no one pays very much attention to. Uh, the uh, his uh, sexual uh, 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 panorama is not unknown to me, and the uh, is close acquaintanceship, friendship almost, you may call it, with insanity is also not foreign to me. Therefore, when he describes an insane asylum and he gives it the proportions of a cathedral, of a kind of truth where there is a line in which let's say uh, Selda said uh, uh, here we can tell the truth and it does not matter what is I mean, she is in this place. She is far more aware of her circumstances than uh, her husband, who is uh, pretending to be sane. That has come by matching, again, matching the very fact that most of my Life, I have lived in the imagination. I have been careful, a time, you know, as careful as I can to hide the fact and behave as uh, supposedly sane people behave. And, uh, but uh, I am. I am trying. Like, for instance, what should I wear the night I thought? Should I put on a good suit? Is it school? It'll probably be mostly students. Should I wear a tie or should I? Uh, would that be out of place? Uh, what did they expect me to wear? All of those questions pass through my mind trying to find the one that, and I'm going to listen to my time now that <laughs> I told you that I am half insane. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I do, be, a director begins, or I begin translating a play in terms, in emotional terms, in terms that I understand that they're they're dictated by the reality of the writer. Do I have enough experiences to match it? People think that directing is moving people from one 
place to another place. Well, it does have to do with movement. But movement coming out of a necessity. To do something. A well, a place, uh, if it moves well, if you don't notice the movement, that means that the person who directed knows something about movement. Because to try to impose upon, let's say somebody is, I asked him, I said, I would like to have some water. Now, say that in our play, a character is terribly nervous. Well, I would use this. What else do I have? I have, what do I have? What can I bring? The words are there, but how can I make it tangible? What do I have? The script, this script is of a, from the last two plays of Garcia Lorca, which I didn't know existed, which has just been given to me. One pack of cigarettes. Strangely enough, there are two packs cigarettes, because before I sat down, I dropped one, and Mr. Eater was kind enough to, you know, uh, uh, making as little as possible, put it aside. So I sit with two packs of cigarettes, which is quite insane, and, and uh, immediately also I have that for the actor to use. I have the water. And I have, now that I've noticed it for the first time, a recording machine that I would put there to intensify the fear, to match the fear, you see? So that's, that's part of what the director does. He, he, he makes what fear Uh, tries to uh, offer the actor the props in which he can project what Mr. O'Neill, Mr. Williams, uh, Mr. Janeiro wanted to. And uh, if it gets, it's hot. Now, that's, that's another thing. And if I'm, I, 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 I'm a, a nervous person begins to perspire. And let's say that I am in front of a judge, and that's why I'm nervous. And I have to pretend that I am not nervous. Well, I mean, when will I have enough courage to do as big a gesture as that? And if I do do it, see what the reaction of it is going to be. But it's all coming from the writer, you see. The writer tells you in this scene, 
he is dominated by fear. He is guided by fear. And what he wants to do is to, he is innocent and he wants to get out of there and breathe again. Now, it has to be, those words that he has put there, they have to become flesh. They have to become sweat. They have to become uh, the, the fact that the answers don't come as quickly. The long pause, it sounded to me like a long tunnel just now. You see, to utilize that, to shrink then the vocabulary just to what the writer gave you. You cannot say anything more, you cannot extend anything more. Or as with Mr. Williams that he has let's say, in summer and smoke. He has his heroine talk and talk and talk and talk when she gets nervous, you see. And that's why uh, trying to cover up that she is nervous and she has what they call a double ganger, a double ganger, a, a small sound in the throat. <coughs> she goes like that at the beginning of the play. And he points that out to her and makes fun of her. And it comes out of the fact that, I would say, how, how, I remember, uh, at the time, uh, Geraldine Page was my age, we were 21, 26, sit there, and how to get that sound in the throat. Well, we began to find out that we were given a result and we had to go backwards to, a, to achieve it. So I used uh, um, heat. She has a fan. There's a group of people that don't seem to say the right thing, so she has to make up an interesting conversation for him, and this is going, and this is going, and she has no time to swallow until uh, in the town. It comes now with an, an instrument, and the actress of Miss Page's uh, genius, um, is a uh, great uh, delight because she is equally inventive. But that's where you do play the violin together. You sweat with her. It's not, it is not. I cannot, I cannot uh, direct without getting myself involved in the situation itself. So anything that I say to the actor comes out of the atmosphere which I and they are operating on. 
I don't, cannot sit back and judge and ask for results. The writer is already asking you for the results. Does it happen sometimes that this tension doesn't work? That is... <laughs> that there is you and the text, which you have selected or been interested, and you come out and you go into the rehearsals and you find that you're not able to create this, uh, whatever it is, which you, I think you've demonstrated to all of us without me being able to put a name to it. You've, you've done admirably. But that sometimes, when it doesn't work, uh, you s sometimes have to simply pull out, uh, beat a retreat, as it were? Yes, I mean, then you know that you are not the man to do it or that there is something there is something wrong. And uh, I, if you cannot get involved, if you, I, I, it has happened to me, in which um, there is a very... You have a relationship with a writer, which is enormously intimate, although you are... Uh, and because you are translating, taking what he has written and translating it in terms of your own life so you can really understand it. And it does matter to you, life and death, to get out of that room. But then you have to establish the same communication with the actor. And if you do not, uh, then, well, <laughs> if somebody wants to make love and the other person doesn't want to make love, I mean, they don't make love. There's something wrong. One of them has to go. It's, it's just, it is that fundamental. But it's enormously, enormously frustrating because a uh, uh, great uh, many actors have... Uh, not a great many, I'll take that back. Uh, some actors come with uh, a preconceived idea of the, the stage itself, I mean the physically. For instance, uh, with, we're center. We're, I'm right center stage. And we think that this is the best position of all. And I happen to disagree. Because you are seeing my profile, and you are seeing my profile. For me, the best position in the entire, dramatically, emotionally, if I were to do Shakespeare, the most intimate position would be I
There was one actor in the play I, I just did that somehow, wherever I put him, he, uh, in, the, in the first run-through, he then did about a year, the second run-through about a year, and the fourth run-through about a year. And by the, the fifth run-through, right in here. Well, you see, that is not... Um, <laughs> There's no communication. <laughs> and nothing does happen. But uh, usually when the writer, the actor, and the director are together and he begins, he, he does begin to get enormously excited. He, uh, the process of Writing is is something like uh, you can imagine how uh, Mr. Williams visualized a certain scene, and he's already ready to uh, to um, make concessions. It would never be exactly as he imagined to be. But if you catch the essence of what he meant. And the scene begins, the man begins to be frightened. Uh, you feel it from the writer when you, when you uh, finish the rehearsal and you sit with him. He said there are a few changes that could go in here and could go. And so you excite your writer as, or try to excite your writer as your writer has excited you and you excite the players. And so the, the being a director is not just, uh, of course, to, to, to do that. Uh, you have to Somebody has a call in our company. Everybody, I, uh, the first time, everybody was coming down with hepatitis, yeah. and uh, so, and uh, there are times you're dealing with people in which uh, you're you have to be patient. Uh, you. You got to, you know, you really do know if you're not in love with your own movement, when a movement is difficult for an actress or an actor to perform, that means that there's something that it is wrong, something that is not understood. It's the same as a writer when uh, an actor or an actress has a great deal of trouble saying a line. And uh, a good writer will explain it. And uh, m many, many, many times changes the line because if it is true that it is very, very, very difficult uh, uh, phrasing the uh, line, the writer changes. Let me, before I ask this question, let me say, we're, we're talking, we'll go to other topics, but 
Uh, I'll ask one more question on this, and then some of you, you know, I'm sure some of you would like to ask some things about this, so please raise your hand. I'll just give you a, a, a minute or two to think while I ask this next question, and, and then, then, then go to it. We'll, we'll interrupt each other, and the more, as I hope as the evening goes by, we'll do it more and more. Um, I guess the last question is, it's, it's, it's sort of obvious, looking back over your career, you have, you have well, one more disgusting sentimentality and an obvious thing, but uh, I suppose the thing that one will most remember Mr. Quintero for is that he has given us our greatest American playwright, and it's rather extraordinary to think about it. Uh, I remember many, many years ago reading the Iceland Comet, and it lay flat on the paper. Fortunately, I'd seen it first. Uh, it, it's something quite extraordinary that Mr. and I don't mean to it's sort of a cheap journalistic trick to say Panamanian and so on. But he has, in fact, given us O'Neill. He's given us to a degree not only because he's presented O'Neill's great plays in definitive versions, but because he's done something very rare in the American theater, which is to go through failure, if I may be so bold. He has presented plays of his that don't quite work. He's presented minor plays. He's presented unfinished plays. It's as if... It's as if... Shakespeare had only been known to us through five or six plays, and someone said, no, wait, there are 32, and they must all be known if we are to understand this playwright. This is a very rare thing in the American theater, that someone is able, is willing to go through everything to present us the total figure, but that's a parenthesis and nothing close it. What I wanted to ask you was, um, have you never been interested or tempted to do precisely Shakespeare, classics, uh, other kinds of plays? Yes, um, uh I did, I did a, a, a play of Shakespeare, uh, and I had a wonderful time. And I, I promised myself that uh, maybe in the near future I will do, um, uh, go to Canada and do a, a, a play of Shakespeare. I had the most marvelous time doing Macbeth. Now, what's marvelous about the, that single experience? was the fact that certain parts of it uh, worked, and really worked. We had, we had the, um, the guilt line going. I did it with uh, Jason Robards and Siobhan McKenna. And um, but we failed in the barbaric, the primitive atmosphere. I, uh, uh, Jason's Macbeth was not the soldier. We, we didn't have time to work on it, or we didn't see it. So, I mean, there are plays that you would like to go back and redo again, because you conquer certain certain sections of it. Oh, yes. And I would like, I would, there is, uh, uh, I suppose every director would like to do that. I would like to do the RSI, of course. Uh, but it's a, uh, works that can only be done if um, you get a grant or some <laughs> university will, uh, the, which I may Say is uh, what I want to dedicate myself to from 
here on, and not the commercial theater, because I find it that he has gotten to a point of uh, you're exhausted by the wrong thing. <laughs> but I, I, I would. I certainly would. Yes. When you cool. speak of the uh, exhausting aspects of the commercial theater, could, could you be more specific? Well, yes, I could be. I can be quite. A <laughs> <laughs> For instance, um, I'm not talking about again one producer because they're all uh, pretty much the same in the sense that they do to put on a play on Broadway costs a great deal of money, even a one-set play. And uh, uh, <coughs> rehearsals on, uh, on, on stage, now you have to have union people, uh, to the point that to even rehearse a play on a stage, which is the only place that you should rehearse the play, because the the perspective is is necessary, not one of those enormous rooms in uh, in what it looks like an office building, and one one whole wall is mir- has mirrors in it because they're they're uh, designed for ballet, and you know how distracting it is to see yourself constantly in a mirror. Sometimes, I mean, I didn't want to intensify the uh, the uh, problem for the actors, but I was in the middle of saying something, and I go like that, and there is this strange, this strange man distorted with his hand going, you know, I take him away, you know? So, uh, that is, and even those rooms cost an enormous amount of money. Now, we had to recreate uh, a small with six, seven people. We had to recreate the memory of the 30s, of the 20s. I say the memory of them because the, pe- uh, the two people involved, Seld and Scott, remember that. And, of course, if you only have six people and the uh, 20s and the kind of music of the 20s, it immediately brings... How, how can you do it? You have to bring dance into it, uh, in those countries, is, is, there's a frenzy. You have to create a frenzy. And they, they also must be costumed in those beaded dresses. Well, your producer will say you get them off the rack. Well, you get them off the rack, you don't get, you, if, and you have six people, that you cannot have six dancers because to hire six dancers plus 
those six people also have to double up and play three and four other roles. So you cannot really create, bring in a, a choreographer and, you know, have six, eight stands. I have uh, some, uh, they are wonderful uh, people that went out of the way and uh, did the job. But uh, each dress cost, and it was mostly labor, $1,800. $2,100. There was no, and then you spend two, three hours arguing, fighting, see how many, uh, uh, well, we can take away one role, B, and make the other, uh, maybe, maybe Theone, I'm talking about Theone Aldridge, already in tears, because <laughs> uh, maybe you can uh, uh, leave a space, a wider space between the uh, uh, one role and the other. The uh, producer sees two nuns, of course, it's a, this this play is their old dead. Therefore, this nuns are like birds of death. So, you remember exaggerating those uh, caps, enormous, and giving them the wings in which to embrace you and for, for forever. And when they open the capes again, you, there's no physical you. Well, they have to, to for, them, for, for it to float like this, for an audience to get, they have to be made of silk. They cannot be made of cotton. <laughs> and it's all like that. Well, it, it, it becomes a, a battle about costuming, about sets, and there it begins the game of compromise. And what you have to do, you go home and you say, up to what point? Up to what point can I compromise? And then comes the fact that what I feel towards Mr. Williams, what I feel that Mr. Williams has given to the American theater, to me as a, as a worker in the American theater in his plays as an audience, member of the audience, uh, not, uh, to the world. And you say, well, no, you cannot, you cannot give it up, you cannot say no, you go back again out of this enormous love. But uh, in, in a way, you find ultimately that you are not uh, doing the work. 
Exactly. I said, it, it suggests itself in your mind. Uh, Mr. Williams and I never had a long talk about what, what do you mean? What are you trying to say in this play? If after reading it, I don't get an idea of what he's trying to say, I, and he has written it, I mean, I shouldn't be directing it, should I? <laughs> and, but, uh, it, then, uh, I, I'll tell you, being specific. You go to the Kennedy Center in Washington. It's supposed to be a tryout for you to be able to look at the production. You know it's over long. You know that certain characters are just beginning to emerge. And uh, to rehearse on the stage, it happened to me when Jason did a production of Long Day's Journey, which he, was offered to me to direct, but I wouldn't direct it again. I've already done it, and I've already done it. I didn't want to do it again. So he did it, and I went in. He asked me to come and help him. So I went in for a week. And there was Jason. I call it rehearsal for one. And I come. And it is all my habit to go to the theater early and walk around the stage by myself and just to figure out things like that for me. And uh, I don't know, all also, I, I, I come from Panama, I have lived in this country most of my mature life. And I um, have a great deal of love and affection for both countries. But there is one country that I thought belonged to me. And it was that stage. I thought that somehow, I, don't, I didn't think. I, I, I have traveled and, uh, you know, I've gone to foreign countries and we get to uh, a theater, and if I know somebody that's in the theater, they take me to see the theater. I enter the stage, and I'm home. I'm not homesick anymore. Well, there we were in the hall. I see Jason, and I see um, Soy Caldwell. And uh, I said, let's go in. And Jason says, wait. You'll get a surprise. I go in to open the door. It's locked. It has, it remains locked until one o'clock because there are, I don't know how many union men required in Washington. <laughs> and at one o'clock, one of these men that pulls the curtain three, six times during the whole evening comes with the key to let you in exactly on the dock. Well, I resented that so deeply that it was like I was 
And it's true. It, 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 it's uh, it necessitated four men for us, the head of the crew, to be able to... They don't do anything. They just sit. And it's something I have never understood, that they're not ashamed to sit doing nothing. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, both Mr. Eden and I, when <laughs> he handed us a little check, we said, well... You know, wait till the evening is over. You, you may <laughs> want to take it back. There's enough conscience left. But it is the same with music. With uh, If you have so many minutes more of music, and it's, you've got, you have to employ four musicians that come every day, every evening, like little undertakers, you know, with a little coffee. Like that. <laughs> and they go downstairs and they play cards. You see? And therefore, the weekly, you have to be a... What? A hit. A solid hit to be able to survive. There is no room for, you know... Let's go and see. And in England, there are many places in which uh, the papers are divided. They have more papers than we do. Two. We only have three. Uh, I hope Mr. Heater. (laughs) Excuse me. We only have three papers. One all-powerful paper. And if that review is not uh, a rave review, the American theater goer does not go. It is not curious to find out what a man of William's caliber is about to this day. Or an actor of the proven quality of Miss Page. Well, thank you very much. But it is true, we, the three of us together could not excite enough curiosity of what we were about. And uh, the play closed Sunday. It is only a week. So, uh, after a while, you say, I, I never, never, I uh, ever thought of, of uh, the theater as a means of fame and richness. I never, never did. If I had thought of that, I, money or something, I would have stayed home and uh, obeyed my father and probably I would have some money in the bank. But uh, it was the joy. I mean, I haven't, other people experience it doing something else. The joy of doing theater, particularly downtown, where we did have all the 
freedom. It didn't matter that he was in a nightclub. It didn't matter that he had three pillars in the middle of the stage. All of a sudden, he made them a tree. The tree was necessary, like in the grass heart. And uh, you could swing on them. You could move on them. You could... I remember... um, Well, the sheer magic of having those people come to see a play like the Iceman Comet that uh, takes about four and a half hours or five hours and sit <laughs> in those hard benches that we had. I would sit there and I would say, look up and down because I don't know where he is. And knew that Mr. O'Neill was smiling somewhere. <laughs> well, that, that is a joy. And it was, it was, it was done for a hundred dollars. That's what it cost us. And our salaries then were fifteen dollars a week in the good weeks. But, and, People usually talk about their beginnings and the hardship. It was no hardship. What? Whatever. It was no hardship at all. I worked for this university during that time at the library in the stats. And you, you put on uh, roller skates and the, the slips would come down and you roller skate and pick the book and put it in the dummy and put it up there. And the fact that you could eat for me, that I could have two fried eggs and eat them with reading a book and knowing that I was going to go to rehearsal and I could have my feet up and no shoes everything that was prohibited in my house. I was free. I was alive with the... Uh, oh, the, the, the total experience. I mean, these men were not bums for me. They always talk about the bums. Yes. They, they were men that their dreams were terribly shabby, yes. But we've been reduced to shabby dreams. But at least they have some dreams. Shabby or not, they still have. And uh, well, uh, the people that I would meet those rehearsals that would go on to 12, 1, and we were never quite exhausted. That was theater, is not spending six hours talking about a row of beans. <laughs> <laughs> Successful, and how at one time you felt you used to 
in the olden times, you seem to have this feeling, and in the contemporary times, it's a you have this problem with uh, the commercial aspect of it, and yet it seems is it seems to be kind of pessimistic that you seem to be saying. Well, I do. I think I think that there was. At, at the time that I came in and we started the theater downtown and the things that were being done also uptown, I think the theater has become the, 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 the present theater except in universities or uh, uh, I think it's, it's very poor. The output is very poor. I mean... Uh, Joe Papp and I have had many, many arguments. You know, he does Shakespeare and his uh, social uh, plays. And, uh, you know, the hell with the poetry. To me. I said, what are you doing, Shakespeare? Uh, it's uh, uh, an enormous enterprise, and it's very good, and it's probably the, the one, one uh, creative beehive one that, that, that we have but uh, I mean compare the elephant man to the Iceman comet and you'll see the elephant you know shrink <laughs> to an ant <laughs> yes and uh, who is going to do the uh, uh, O'Neill plays? Everybody talks about it, and everybody would say to me, all right, Jason, you get Jason, Colleen, get you. They got three names, and we can slip the old man in. You don't, uh, I'm not taught uh, artistic integrity. I, I never have thought uh, What, you can, uh, we used to, out of a, a, a broom and you put some, some green gauze, it can be a tree. And, uh, but is the audience willing to come along with you? And would they allow you to do that? And they say, no, that's not. That's not, uh, that won't go. Or, I mean, there, I had a recent experience with a play that I, I believe very, very strongly. And I've had the, had the promise of many a producer, say anything you want to do. We, but it was uh, a subject that uh, they did not, and also it was, I wanted to do it with a certain actress that at the moment is here, is not popular. And uh, couldn't get it uh, produced, couldn't get it done. But uh, I, I, uh, for me, the theater is much less exciting than the adventurous time of uh, Miss. Webster and Miss Legallian uh, going still with her, trying to to uh, uh, 
do their company. And on Broadway, you, you still had uh, Cyrano with Jose Ferrer. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it was very exciting uh, uh, to me. I mean, can you imagine there was a time in which you could have a production of The Three Sisters and be a, was financially feasible? Uh, Miss Cornell uh, production with Ruth Gordon and uh, um, Edmund Wen. Uh, you mentioned Chekhov. O'Neill has gotten by. The, on, the only one that has really been uh, uh, successful, financially really successful, was the uh, um, Moon for the Misbegotten. And in New York, you go out of town, and they they hit him and hit him and hit him and hit him, and the producer comes to you with a review and says, "Cut, cut, 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 cut. You must cut." And then you remember the old man saying, "I will not. I'm, I'm not writing for commuters. Writing for people in the theater." So there you are. To me, maybe it's I who have lost some of the vigor and the passion. Maybe I've been around up there a little too long and should find other fields in other, in other countries particularly, which I am thinking. I have all of Central America that they're anxious to do theater, but they they uh, they haven't had much experience, so don't know how. Some place where you feel that you're necessary because you get your vitality from from other people. You inject, but you have to get the feedback. And uh, they said they're, they're, uh, I was I was badly educated by the circle, in which anyone that came there was because they wanted to come there, out of their passion for the theater. They did not come there for a job because we didn't pay that well. So I'm not used to, and I don't know how to work with actors who regard there is a job, just a job, in the most limited way of a job. Because I think, I think, you know, uh, what I did downtown or what I do, I do my job, but it has a, it includes passion and love with it. years and years, when you began your career, you 
had the good fortune to be a contemporary of Eugene O'Neill when his plays were first being done, or first allowed to be done, is that correct? No, no, he, he was dead. I never met him. <laughs> no, no, I know, but his, his plays were not allowed to be no, his plays were not done commercially. He died thinking that he was a total and complete failure. That all of that work, and uh, I met Ms. O'Neill, and uh, we used to have lunch together uh, once or twice every week. So I heard her her tales. But can you imagine this man? No one except Sweden. And that's why he left in his will that his new play, Londe's Journey into Night, was to have its premiere in Sweden. But his plays were not being done. He thought he was relegated. He was all hat and he was relegated to the library. And when someone handed me a copy of The Iceman Comet. And I read it. And I can only tell you, uh, I saw a bar when I finished reading it, which was early in the morning. It was dawn was coming up. I saw this bar where all these people of, of different uh, political ideologies and, and the ceiling of the bar was the Sistine Chapel, covered up by layers and layers and layers of, of, um, of um, um, what do you call it? Cowwet. That's what I saw. And I had to do it. <laughs> I just had to do it. I remember saying, I have to do it. Now, what does that exactly, what it means, I don't know. But, and I asked for the rights, and they were, uh, I was turned down, because later I found out Mrs. O'Neill was, first of all, there was no off-Broadway. She thought it was, a, which it was a tiny little nightclub downtown, and uh, it took a man. Now it's very easy. You say off-Broadway and, you know, the critics come and people come. But at the time that we were there in Sheridan Square, uh, it was a nightclub, an abandoned nightclub. And I don't know oh, well, I do know, the love for the play, that prompted a great man of the theater, Mr. Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times, to take a taxi and go to a dingy nightclub to see a revival of Summer and Smoke. To me, it's still quite adventurous and quite mysterious. But uh, um, O'Neill's plays were not done. I remember Mr. Kerr's uh, review saying we have to reevaluate now the entire works of O'Neill 
when he came down to see the ice. Anyway, you, you, you started with the premise. You can always, what is the question? Well, the question is, uh, I don't know, I, I may be mistaken. I associate you bringing O'Neill to the American theater in, in, in a way in which he was never brought to the American theater before, which is really what I began to say. Now, if you were a, a beginning director today, Jose Quintero had already discovered O'Neill, and people were sending you things like The Elephant Man mm -hmm. and um, other plays about infirmity, like <laughs> Shadow Box, you know, Ad Nauseam. What would be, would, would you still have this desire to return to the university, or would you continue to search for the excitement and the love of? Well, I, I, I do as much as I can. Like, for instance, somebody came with, uh, with uh, the queer fellow, uh, Brendan Behan. Uh, Brendan Behan had not been done in this country. And uh, I read it, and I did it. The Balcony, uh, Janet. Uh, was uh, a small group had done the maze, I think. By that time, it was a, a very exciting time because uh, theaters began to mushroom around the Delis, uh, op you know, uh, be open again, and the Cherry Lane began to do new plays, and. Um, it was very exciting, and all of the people that uh, had gone on uh, to, uh, most of the people that uh, uh, have gone on to Broadway and, and the, a lot of them to the movies, they all were around, they all were there. There was an interchange, which you don't have now, but there was always, and there is still, there is an excitement about, well, I mean, I am handed something tonight like that. I didn't know that it existed. I can hardly wait to get home <laughs> to read it. Of course, it is Lorca, and, uh, you know, he, he, he's already a recognized uh, uh, poet. But there's, uh, aside from the production that came from Spain, which I thought was magnificent, of Yerma, Lorca has never been a popular uh, playwright here in, in the States due to a very poor translation. Yeah. Are you suggesting perhaps a more general malaise in the theater that, that the, the intellectual substance, the, um, the experimentation, uh, the... Uh, the risk-taking of a Genet or, or just the, the substance of an O'Neill is not being written today. No, I don't know. There may be wonderful places that are around. Uh, what I'm, 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 I'm really addressing myself about a certain kind of apathy that has come to an audience too. And, you know, I mean, as, 
an audience is really beginning to uh, look at, at the theater as a just escape. They want to, uh, things are getting too tight, too tough, too, uh, this, this going. There's just a small group that remained. I think it was, it was, there was more, more curiosity at the time of, of the circle. I'm amazed that there's such little curiosity about if I if if I read that um, um, oh God he were alive. Let's say uh, uh, Mr. Giradu wrote another play. I would like to see it. I would like I would like to go and see it. If Genet wrote another play, I would like to see it. And I am I'm quite amazed that uh, I refer so not because it it uh, close. I mean, in, in the usual sense of pride, no. But the lack of curiosity of the tenacious Mr. Williams, who wants to talk about a certain perspective, and they want to keep him. They don't want to deal with him exactly, I don't think, any of the... the, the uh, criticisms that I read of this play. They don't want to deal with him in terms of what he is talking about today, but in terms of comparison, it is not the glass menagerie. It is not streetcar. Of course it is not streetcar. This man is relating, conquering what he had to conquer. He went through madness and he conquered because he wrote about it with a lucidity. I, I am surprised at the lack of excitement. Of course, every ticket costs $20, $20, $18, How many risks can uh, be taken in the theater with that? Price tag on it. Yes. Tulip in London seems to thrive much better than it does in New York. Is that because of government support? I don't know the London scene, but I, it seems to me that. They don't have very many $18, That's right. Why is this a movement on the front? Even that's not so sure anymore in London. It's, uh, yeah. it's going. Right. It's diminishing. Yeah. 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 We needed an influx of British tourists to buy ours. I'm a person that doesn't spend anything, and your play was worth every cent of it. Well, thank you. 
Yes. Do you think, uh, sir, that if streetcar was revived on Broadway, it could be commercially successful today? Oh, it was, and it was. Because it is a recognized, it already has the stamp of approval. And you ask uh, uh, some of the audience coming out, as a matter of fact, in this play, uh, I think Mr. Williams answers quite, quite clearly the question that he, to me, he poses at the end of Streetcar. I mean, uh, um, survival at what price? I would go with Blanche and survive that way, you know. But that's me. But. It does, it, it does end with that, to me, with that question mark. What was Kevin Page cast? Huh? What was Kevin Page cast as a Scott and American actor? Because we send the play to about 18 American actors and they all turned it down because they felt that the part of the woman was uh, more important. <laughs> and that is the truth. Was it inconceivable to do the show off To do the... No, I tell you, I think that we made a great mistake. I mean, were I to do it again, or any play that would strike my fancy, I would come back to Off-Broadway. I really don't want to go back to the to so that the street. What you're talking about, especially with the circle, all of that was done without the financial aspect that Broadway had. But off Broadway is a very costly proposition. Right now, off Broadway is a very, very costly how much, uh, Johnny, does let's say uh, a well mounted off Broadway production cost today? That's off-Broadway. We, the off-Broadway I was talking about was $100 a production. No, but even within that, there's, there's still... You can do a lot more off-Broadway and it's a small... Oh, yes, you, you can. I, 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 I think that... Uh, that could, could I ask a question yes. that, might, that might bring this discussion to a, to a circle? You, you, you talked about observing other directors, such as Ter- Sir Tyrone Guthrie. You've described your own directorial techniques, which seem to me the, the essence of how to get inside what the author has done. What I don't understand, Jose, is in what sense, when looking at other directors or other directings, other directors rehearsing other actors, what is it that makes you not? What is it that, not repels you, but what is it that in their technique which suggests to you that, no, I could, I could never approach an actor that way, I could never approach a play that way. What is it in other directors, not Sir Tyrone, mm-hmm. but what is it in other directors, you having observed other directors rehearsing, what is it that strikes you as, for you, absolutely wrong? Well, I haven't observed that many. Okay. But let's say uh, Tyrone Guthrie, uh, I, I, I couldn't be Tyrone Guthrie. 
through his what I would call impersonality, you know, he transmits being he. He transmitted what I do by in my emotional uh, uh, way. Like for instance, I, I remember he had great humor and they were doing six characters in search of an author, which is the kind of material which I felt and he himself uh, 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 admitted it to me that it is, wasn't the kind of material that he felt uh, most comfortable with. And there was an actress he gave her a cross. He said, now, yeah, you run, you run up, and then you come running down the stage right. And she came. And she said, uh, but that doesn't seem real to me. And he said, if you want to see reality, Go and watch a street fight. <laughs> what is needed here is nasal resonance. Press on. <laughs> you see, it, it, it's something so totally foreign to me that and in a certain way he made a contact, a communication with that actress that she went and she made the cross you know, he laughed and she laughed and they understood each other. And she made the cross and she made it with the vitality that he he was after. But it's, it's just that I, I have never had the desire to imitate. Not because I have, I, I, uh, out of conceit, it's just that I am... Uh, it, it never has happened. It was always, you know, whatever it was. Oh, because I tried. I tried. Yes, there is a reason. I tried to be a good boy and failed horribly every time. And the more I tried, the worse. <laughs> I mean, my father would give my brother the standards in front of me. And said, These are two wonderful and very expensive pens. Our uniforms were white, we wore white shirts and blue trousers. And he says, I don't want to hear that you have lost the point. And so from that moment on, wherever uh, I can hold him on and trying to be exactly like my brother. In a little while, because of touching it so much, afraid to lose it, it got absolutely open, this got full of ink. In seeing the horror of that, trying to dry the ink, the pen would fly off. I come home, a total disaster, and my brother would come home with his white shirt and his pen where he was. So I think when my moment of liberty came, I, just, I guess was the end of imitating anybody because it was going to be a fiasco. And I think that that's why... Travesura para siempre. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful.
Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.